for October 22nd, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 225. We're going to Wasteland. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matthew Rather, here with the panel and special guest, uh, back, one of our favorite special guests. It's been a wonderful, a bumper crop of special guests this month on Overthinking It. We have Zach Johnson, Jick on Kingdom of Loathing. Hey, how are you? Hey, pretty good. How you doing? I'm great. Uh, well, uh, welcome back to the show. We'll get to what you're doing in just a minute. But uh, to begin, join us in the question of the week panel and special guest. In honor of uh, Ben Affleck's most recent directorial uh, effort, Argo, and, and acting effort, I should say, is uh, his work, his latest work in the oeuvre of this great auteur, uh, Ben Affleck. What? He's not not an auteur. <laughs> He's not a nauteur. <laughs> uh, what uh, if you were to make a film by uh, by uh, traveling to a uh, a country hostile to the United States and making a film set there? What uh, country would you want to travel to, and what film would you like to make in a regime hostile uh, to uh, the good old eight seven two? So uh, hey, drink because it's uh, it's someone's first in the alphabet. Uh, ben Adams. Hey, how you doing? I'm well. I'm decent, you know. I'm, I'm all right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna. I'm already getting excited for the remake coming out next month. Uh, so I think we need to come up with uh, the alternative to the Red Dawn remake and go to North Korea and film Blue Dawn. Uh, but after the fact, we're gonna have to change all the stuff from the United States to some other European country because you know you can't sell it in the U.S. otherwise. <laughs> Mm-mm. Matt, your answer circuits are still broken. <laughs> Ever since I, I locked you in my basement, I felt like I was stomping on. I felt like I was stomping on everyone before in our our uh, in our pre-show in our pre-show banter. I was trying to let someone else someone else slip in. I'm sorry, Ben. I didn't mean to dishonor your your entry by not by not jumping right in. I was just trying to you know give equal opportunity to all of the podcasters. Look, we haven't been introduced yet, so we're trying to suspend the sort of suspense. We're trying to create the imaginary sense that there might actually only be one person or two people or three people. We all make our entrances, right? Right, like, as, though, you know, yeah, as though there were as though there were entrances on a stage. Yeah, we yeah. used to we used to try to do that. God, we haven't in a while, uh, have we? All right, Pete, you're next. <laughs> well, now you've seen the bride before the wedding, so there's no thrill. In <laughs> why buy why buy the cow if you can get the Pete for free? <laughs> All right, so I'll answer your question. Uh, one recent development has put my answer at risk, right? And so, so if you ask me what's the thing about Argo that really stands out, the most important thing about Argo, I would be the fact that it, it, it's named after a fictional boat. And I push really hard for this question, this podcast question, uh, to be about fictional boats, but it was not uh, broadly accepted. Uh, I remain per- persecuted minority on the podcast. But I would go to Myanmar, and I would film... The film Pacific Princess, 
which would be a uh, a well overdue J.J. Abrams inspired reboot of the Love Boat uh, in filmic form. I would get a giant cruise ship, and uh, I would I would steer it up. Uh, let me look at a map of Myanmar to determine what rivers I could put the cruise ship on. Uh, yeah, actually, you know what? Maps of Myanmar might be difficult to, or to date because of the hostility of the regime, uh, but I'll get right on that. Um, yeah, no, I, I would definitely, I would definitely go somewhere where nobody has any sort of nostalgic connection to the Love Boat, and I would make a Love Boat movie. Uh, and I think that because it would be, it would be reinforcing. Uh, you know, it would, it would probably shatter some of their notions about what's bad about the United States. I suspect because mm-hmm. the idea that the United States has this agenda that's really cogent and makes sense uh, <laughs> and is kind of aggressive. You know, like oh, the United States is trying to do all these bad things. Uh, I would give them something. It would be very, very difficult for the regime in power to explain <laughs> in a way that was hostile to them. Uh, such as like uh, you know a, a smiling bartender handing out Bahama Mamas and uh, Fran Drescher being the cruise director shuffleboarding all the old people around the deck. So there you go, Pacific Princess Love Boat 2015. And it's, it's happening. Myanmar <laughs> used to be yeah. Burma, but isn't anymore. But the thing is, Myanmar just joined the United States in one of its major uh, military exercises, uh, right? Like the, there's a huge, you know, it's huge, th- huge change, uh, sort of a symbol of how China's been throwing its weight around in Southeast Asia. That uh, Myanmar would even be interested, right, in getting involved in this sort of situation, and also, of course, because of the problematic human rights record of their government. But uh, they're not quite as lost the United States as they've, been, as they've been, apparently. So maybe the project will be put in jeopardy, and we will have to move it to somewhere uh, in greater need of adventure and romance. So there you go. <laughs> Come aboard. We're <laughs> expecting you. Um, Zach, I will, I, I'll give you a choice since you are our honored guest. You can go now, which is your place in the alphabet, or you can uh, you know, reserve uh, your entry for the honored uh, final slot. Well, there's no sense in uh, bucking the system. I'll, uh, I'll go now. Uh, so the, the nation that I would uh, go to would be the uh, sovereign nation of Sealand, uh, which is not overtly hostile to us. Uh, it's just being, an, uh, as, as far as I know, an uninhabited uh, offshore oil platform. Uh, but it is, it is hostile to our way of life insofar as it allows offshore data havens to trample the copyrights of, of our nation's uh, intellectual property creators. And the movie that I think I would make, uh, which would be pretty much the only thing that you could film there, would be an actual technically accurate remake of the movie Hackers, uh, where really it was just a bunch of people in rooms very far away uh, that doing things that were not at all interesting and uh, calling, uh, calling various receptionists and pretending to be people that they weren't uh, to try to get passwords. And that's Excellent. it. Sealand. Um, did you did you know that the did you see the uh, obituary uh, for uh, I guess it was last last Sunday for the uh, the ruler of Sealand? I did, but I don't remember anything about it. Uh, yeah, it's well, he apparently had a um, fantastic, uh, fantastically interesting life. Um, yeah. So Sealand. Uh, I would like my own. I don't know that that Data Haven stuff ever actually took off. Uh, I, I remember only ever hearing plans about it. I don't. Yeah, they uh, were gonna they were gonna fill the fill the like the legs of the the platform with a server farm or something, right? Mm. Um, For an uninhabited island, they have a really detailed Wikipedia page. <laughs> 
Uh, I think it's of particular interest to the kind of people who are likely to spend a lot of time writing meticulously detailed Wikipedia articles. Yeah, there's (laughs) a selection bias, isn't there? Uh, uh, Mark Lee, next in the alphabet. Drink because I'm last in the alphabet, aside from the host, right? Yeah. All right, just drink, regardless of where I am in the alphabet, okay? Okay, so um, my original answer was going to be North Korea as well um, for uh, Fast and the Furious Pyongyang Drift because the streets are pretty not full of cars. It would be pretty easy to chase a lot, to stage elaborate chase sequences. Um, But Ben already took North Korea, and as we know, uh, North Korean, uh, the the film department of North Korea can only accommodate uh, one uh, American movie production per decade. So I'm going to put that project on ice and have to go for something something that is I would actually like to see, not a a sarcastic. facetious response to this question um is that um how many of you are aware of the history of iran um sort of after world war tour prior to the shah right they had um a democratically elected a prime minister mohammed mossadegh i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly um but he was like quote unquote a good guy and um but uh, the british and the americans got really mad at him because he wanted to nationalize the oil industry and that uh, set in a whole chain of emotions which the united states and britain um deposed uh him and, and instituted the shah and who was a really bad dude and eventually led to the rise of uh, Khomeini and the uh, Iranian revolution. Um, this is a fascinating story, um, one that I, I learned recently um, and also was mentioned very briefly at the beginning of the movie Argo. And how great would it be, right, to have that movie told properly, you know, on location in Iran, telling the story of how <laughs> the uh, the Americans and the British really conspired to do the really wrong thing and just sort of like create uh, in some ways help create the awful mess which we're in right now. Okay, when I say how great would that be, I mean I would love to see that. I doubt that an American audience really want to see uh, us being painted really as the really really bad guys, like the Bond villains who are conspi- conspiring behind the scenes to uh, to topple world governments in a, in a really unconstructive way. Um, but uh, that's my idea, and uh, I'm sticking to it. I'm really looking forward, uh, Mark, to your uh, upcoming history textbook, Good Guys and Bad Guys and How to Tell the Difference, The History of Mankind. (laughs) 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 Because it's uh, the way you say it. Just that level of analysis, I think, if we just were to extrapolate it to the rest of all human conflict, we could sort out a lot of the ambiguities and difficulties of economic and political management of systems. Oh, yeah, totally. Congratulations. You've, You've invented Fox News. (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> oh, what were you going to say, Ben? Yeah, you would see, that I stop be a list people, of <laughs> <laughs> Would that book just be a list of years and two columns on each page, just 1919, good guys, bad guys? Yeah, exactly. And the mo- there would also be goatees. It would have to, there would have to be a corresponding book that was, yeah, just a, I was about to say a list of uh, 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 trends in mustache and beard styles, because that's normally how you can tell. In a in a given point in history, whether somebody's a good guy or a bad guy is by their facial hair, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But yeah the you have to read the change over time, and so yeah, that that I would that companion book would be just as interesting as the main book. Mm-hmm. Well, and Shaw uh, devoid of facial hair, but uh, his festooned with medals. I think. That's- <laughs> uh, all right, let's do mine. Um, mine is uh, mine is set in Colombia. Uh, not not a regime, I guess, now that's that's sort of institutionally hostile to the United States. But we're going to set it in the early 80s in the heyday of uh, of the um, Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar. Um, and it's going to be the story of one brave man 
who dared to lead his mule laden with coffee beans over the mountain. My friends, it is the story of Juan Valdez. Colombia isn't hostile to the United States like no, at all. No, 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 it, it wasn't. But there was more trouble with drug, uh, with, you know, narco terrorism and drug policy in the early 80s. Right. This like, is true. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm thinking it's, you know, set in, uh, you know, set in about the time of like clear and present danger or something like or the uh, the one of the Tom Clancy movies, uh, you know, that that uh, had Harrison Ford in them. Um, Patriot Games. Patriot Games, yeah, right. It's, it, what's, what was happening in Colombia during Patriot Games is not answered in Patriot Games, which is about <laughs> Ireland, I believe. <laughs> but uh, although maybe it is answered. I, may, I haven't read it in a long time. It's been a while. Games, well, pa- Patriot Games is technically a sequel to Clear and Present Danger. I don't remember which order the movies came out, but I know in the books, because the, the, Patriot Games is like a, or sorry, it's a prequel. It's a prequel. Yeah, I think Patriot Games came out first as a movie. You know, I mean, my my track record with facts on this podcast is not very good. But the uh, there is one where where Harrison Ford goes to South America, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. clear and present danger. That's clear and present danger. Okay, not Patriot Games. I, I was right the first time. Um, yeah, uh, maybe maybe Harrison Ford can be in can be in my Juan Valdez movie as the donkey. <laughs> <laughs> He's very garrulous now. He's very cranky. He'll be like Eddie Murphy. He gets to be the front half this time, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, someone, for rescuing that with the joke. Um, so, Zach, I, I gather from talking to you that you are actually mobile. Uh, you're on, uh, you're on a, a great trip, a great trek across these United States. Yeah, seeing it the way that it was intended to be seen from from inside a car that gets uh, questionable gas mileage. Um, yeah, we, we've taken off and we're driving around a bit, seeing some seeing some friends and family and uh, and various landmarks and such. We we didn't have much of a plan to start with, but uh, we we did something recently that uh, I thought might be of some interest to you guys, which was uh, we stopped in uh, Graceland and visited the uh, I guess the death place, not the birthplace of uh, of one Elvis Presley. Have any of you guys been to Have any of you guys been to Graceland? Well, well yes, I was. Uh, I was a big fan of Graceland back in the day. Thank you very much. Yes, I've been. Yeah, as we were walking in uh, to the ticket booth, I, I turned to my girlfriend and said, "Wait, wait a minute! I don't even like Elvis Presley." Which I realized after making that joke that I kind of don't, and that I was mostly going to Graceland to investigate it as the reference of the Dead Milkmen song, "Going to Graceland." <laughs> um, which I will, which I will send you guys the lyrics to in the in the back channel here. Uh, I, they very, they very obviously, upon going there, they definitely went there and then wrote the song about it because everything that they talked about was a specific highlight of the tour, like the uh, the fifteen foot long couch and the the jungle room where you are explicitly told that Elvis Presley cut some records, including Moody Blue, uh, and the just extremely crass commercialism that surrounds Graceland and all of the uh, Elvis-themed stores and w- waffle houses and uh, <laughs> and uh, various various things. Although they did say they did say in that song uh, that it costs eight fifty just to see his house. It is now up to uh, thirty two dollars for the actual mansion. Huh. Are there upsells Which, uh, to that? I mean, can you get like the audio tour if you pay fifty or something like that? 
the audio the audio tour was included in the 32 um oh, which wow. was which was actually pretty pretty interesting um the 32 is the baseline you can you can spend an extra four dollars to see his cars and then to go through his airplanes uh, which which we 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 sprung for but you know they, they do that thing where you look at it and you think well 36 dollars isn't that much more than 32 dollars mm-hmm. uh, yeah the, the 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 cars were pretty cool the airplanes uh the the airplanes had gold-plated seatbelt buckles. That was a... a that was <laughs> uh, and there was a bed. There was a bed, and it was in the back of the airplane. I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a, I'm a guy that hates to fly. And uh, the idea of being able to sleep on an airplane in a, in a bed is totally alien to me. But they put the bed at the very back of the airplane, which I guess maybe makes some sense in terms of privacy, but not in, not in, uh, not in terms of how much bouncing around it's going to do. Well, you know, <laughs> he was, he was a, a hunk guy. of hunk of burning love. It, Graceland was fascinating to me in in the sense that it, so a it was a place where a lot of money got spent making a place cool in the seventies, and b a lot of money was spent by a guy who was still young enough, I think, to be at a bar with his buddies and say, wouldn't it be great if we did X and then to actually do X at great personal expense, mm-hmm. you know, like convert one room into a jungle, <laughs> uh, you know, d- 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 put a tiki billiards room in, uh, in the place. Like it, 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 it was nuts. And it was nuts in this very specific, very preserved way that, that is, it was very, it was like walking onto a television set. Mm hmm. That's a good way to describe it. It was also filled with it was also filled with television sets. I I, I had hoped to get more of the stories of the, the third TV in this line of TVs was the one that Elvis famously shot when he got angry about something that was on the news. But they they uh, they kept all the juicy stories on the down low. Oh, so they very, still have the like old. Oh, sorry. No, yeah, they still have like old. Okay, sorry. Do they still have like old tube TVs there, like preserved the ones that he actually watched, or do they put on new TVs that show like clips of Elvis and stuff? There are some new things showing showing some you know just weird, like really low budget sort of DVD slideshow things. But all of the all of the stuff that was there of of his seems like it it was either original or or a fairly faithful reproduction of original interesting i mean like to to sort of put this in the context of contemporary pop culture i feel like the 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 hipster way to approach the the sort of graceland experience would be to go to tupelo mississippi to his birthplace home right which is this like two bedroom this like this not two bedroom but two room shack that his dad built Right, it has like a kitchen and a bedroom, and that's it. It's for the whole family, uh, right? And it's it's this little place, and and uh, because I think because because I don't know when I was growing up, Graceland was enough of an institution that it feels almost like a sort of religious place, but it's very heavily narrativized in my mind, right? Like Elvis is defined in terms of Graceland, Graceland is defined in terms of Elvis, and then you actually listen to his music, and you're like, what? Right, like, like I mean, that was sort of the sequence of events for me in terms of getting to know who Elvis was, right? Which was sort of know that he had gotten fat and had a crazy career and was in Las Vegas and he had Graceland, which was a crazy mansion. And, and then eventually also learning that he had this sort of a d- abusive relationship with his manager or whatever it was uh, and this crazy messed up situation with drugs. And then like years and years and years later, after hearing, you know, Jailhouse Rock here and there, like realizing what sort of an old fashioned kind of musician he is by contemporary standards. You know what I mean? Like uh, there's a detachment between how I would appreciate him as an artist from my own perspective now 
and uh, how I would imagine how I imagined him as an artist when my primary way of thinking about him was in terms of Graceland. Um, it, with yeah. Graceland, though, he bought it when he was 23 and died at 42. So it, I mean, it was mostly where he lived, right? I think his his entire adult life. I, although I'm not actually sure how old he was when he, you know, he obviously had it. I think he paid. They said he paid a hundred thousand dollars for the. 17,000 square foot house and the, and the 13 acres that it was on, um, mm. in, you know, wh- whatever year that was <laughs> dollars. Yeah. So, but it, but it was, it was, you know, it, it, it did, it has to have had an effect on just his approach to things like that's, that was being in a space that he sort of created and was clearly willing to just do whatever he wanted with. Right, right, right. It's interesting. And it, it's it's interesting to put it in the context of somebody who was kind of, I guess, I don't, I don't want to say hood rich, but who was definitely nouveau rich to the extreme nouveau, right? Like, who had not had money and who was kind of, uh, didn't know how to, to spend it and, and, and all that other sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, that latter part there is why I describe, or why I said to people about Graceland that you haven't really seen America until you've seen Graceland. Um, that might be hyperbole. That might just be like uh, me uh, exaggerating the experience and the importance of Graceland through the years after having been there and just <laughs> really wanting other people to go so I can talk to them about can compare the experience. But um, that's how I've always thought about it through the years is that um, it is this sort of microcosm of that uh, of that uniquely American experience of uh, coming, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, coming from that two bedroom shack uh, in the country to take over the world. I think it makes a better story that that b- because he he did come into this money so early and you know so sort of out of nowhere that he did do the crazy stuff that resulted in Graceland being what it is as this really weird it's like a it's like a snapshot of 1970s culture but of a specific flavor of 1970s culture that almost nobody got to experience right except elvis and his entourage mm-hmm. it was it just just a sort of like a, a hyper real version of what was going on then i don't know it was it, but a lot of it was was curious too because i wonder how much of the like big buildings that were just full of his gold records and his awards and stuff were there while he was there and how much of it because i mean do, do you think elvis was the kind of guy that would erect a, a building to store his his you know his trophies and plaques in. I, I think so. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I would do if I had that many trophies and plaques. I mean, I feel like he probably didn't build cases and put mannequins to put his clothes on. <laughs> so a lot of that, a lot of that, I think is is, is after the fact. But uh, yeah, so, it was, it was so much, so much more space was dedicated. So much more of the tour was dedicated to that. You know, here are all of these like sort of poster scrapbooks of things that happened to to elvis and stuff about his career and and so little of it was dedicated to this is what elvis's life was like this is what he did i mean this you know these were some events or some actions that he right that he took yeah this you know because they they don't let you into the upstairs part of graceland where he actually lived they only let you into the parts where he entertained and where his his sort of retinue would would shoot pool Mm. Wait, really? There's like, in t- there's like, it's like Pompeii. There's like large sections of Graceland that remain unexplored by the general public. <laughs> I don't know how large. I don't know how large they are. There's just a second. There's just a second story, and and uh, yeah, I mean, you don't get to see, for instance, the toilet that he died on. Which I, I almost wish that there was a that there was a, a Graceland After Dark tour where you got an alternate audio track that was 
guy like Elvis's drinking buddies telling stories about stuff that happened in these rooms as opposed to the sort of sanitized PR version of of what was going on. Well, I mean, just thanks to the magic of portable audio players and the Internet these days, we could very easily record that alternate commentary audio guide for you, basically. Uh, It would be even better if we just made it up. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> this was like my, this is like the idea my, my friends and I had for the Boston Haunted Starbucks tour, where you learn about all the ghosts living all the Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, we could do like a yeah a Graceland After Dark audio tour, and also we could make it so that you could do it in your own house. Like we would be vague enough about things. Look for it. See yeah. that see that couch over there? That's where the ghosts of. Tupac Shakur and Elvis Presley had a jam session. Exactly. <laughs> so let me ask this. You talked briefly about the Dead Milkman song uh, about going to Graceland. I have a suspicion that's been around for a long time, which is that the Paul Simon song Graceland is nonsense and is kind of stupid. Um, that, or at least that it isn't really about Graceland. Um, I don't know. Do you feel like Graceland is well represented or misrepresented in the Paul Simon song of the same name? You know, I, I tried. I was thinking about the Paul Simon song Graceland when I was when I was thinking, you know, what what I was going to uh, talk about in terms of like my own experience of the culture as it relates to Graceland. And I could not remember a single interesting thing about the Paul Simon song Graceland. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking up the lyrics now, but I, I it, that that whole album seems to be a sort of like just almost a, a personal rumination on the part of Paul Simon that that takes place in new orleans and 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 mississippi and and tennessee but but might as well not well it takes place in south africa a lot of it right like the musically yeah yeah i mean i guess it was all that that, did he record all of that there was that was that recorded in the sort of same same context as the rhythm of the saints uh, there's a documentary. Uh, there's a documentary actually about the recording of it. I think it was done. I think it was done in multiple places, um, but it's on Netflix. You can actually go uh, look at the the uh, Paul Simon Graceland documentary um, uh, on Netflix. But yeah, it's a, a lot of the lyrics. A lot of the lyrics on that record, and I like that record musically a lot. But a lot of the, the lyrics are sort of are sort of nonsense, or at least are not. Are sort of impressionistic to the the to the point where you, I mean you need a documentary where Paul Simon explains his train of thought um, really uh, uh, really explicitly to you um, and and otherwise they don't make they don't make any sense. So like the yeah. lyrics to Graceland are like the Mississippi Delta uh, shining like a national guitar, right? Uh, I'm following the highway something something. I don't have that. I'm doing this from memory. I'm following the highway by the river to the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, right? Right. And if there's things that will make me think about Elvis Presley, it's uh, nationalism. I guess he was kind of nationalistic. Well, no, no, no. A national guitar is a very specific reference to a brand of guitar from back in the day, which was um, it was called the national brand. Um, and it was uh, it was it was shiny. It was like made of metal. It had this huge metal plate on it. Oh, interesting. Oh, that that makes. And then there's the the addition of that is the big river of the nation. So there's sort of a tertiary meaning that yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's funny cause I sort of joked that Elvis doesn't seem patriotic. Um, but I think I remember, 
uh, watching like when Elvis, I was watching something about Elvis Presley's shows in Madison Square Garden, right, where he uh, he wore the decked out, and also the Hawaii shows where he wore the decked out jumpsuits, his sort of comeback shows, and how he chose to put an eagle on the jumpsuit because it was representative of America, and he kind of saw himself as representing America to the rest of the world, and it's kind of amusing to think of like if you look at the sort of way that the eagle is stylized on Elvis Presley's clothing, generally it is so different from the way that we generally think of eagles as being stylized in patriotic garb. Right, it kind of doesn't have those stiff fascist wings or like that noble that noble beak that we associate that stern noble beak. Um, the Elvis Eagle is a very different sort of America. Um, it's uh, it's got it's almost Mexican by like contemporary <laughs> standards in terms of its color scheme and the way that it kind of flows over the fabric. Um, well, that in a way too is quite American, right? Mexican imagery. I want to go back to what you said earlier, Pete, about Elvis seeing himself as a symbol of America, right? Um, I observed this during the last playing of the World Cup, um, in which I saw that lots of American fans, uh, or groups of the entire groups of them, were dressed up as Elvis. Like that was their way of expressing their patriotism and their support of the USA national soccer team. Um, and I found that to be really interesting. Like Elvis is this sort of like ubermensch superhero um, that really is a symbol of the United States in a way that you'd be very hard pressed to find other countries who have like a beloved icon of pop culture that takes on that same sort of of, of meaning and significance. Elvis would definitely be mentioned in our version of uh, Hugh Grant's speech from Love Actually about uh, England being a great nation. He would or be the like- David Beckham. Yeah, and if our, if our Kenneth Branagh got up and gave a speech where a bunch of smokestacks were growing out of a field, he would be dressed like Elvis. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I never had a problem necessarily with Paul Simon's song Graceland uh, as its artistic value overall, just in terms of kind of a correspondent value of truth with, with regards to its relationship to the place and the symbol of actual Graceland. Well, actual Graceland is, of course... You know, now, now of course, we go down the rabbit hole of postmodernism and poststructuralism. Like, well, what is actual Graceland? Is it different for me than it is for Paul Simon? You know, it's a name for a place, but are we talking about the atoms that constitute the place or the kind of way that it's signified? Right. Um, and it's it also, so as a phrase, I mean, it's very laden. It's very laden. It is a very evocative name for a place. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of cheating, though, right? Because when you identify Graceland uh, as, a, as sort of a central location, you're kind of subverting the idea that our holy spaces should be part of our kind of older, like, traditions. Sort of, you know, if you place Graceland in sort of the center of the universe, you're kind of turning it into Jerusalem. Uh, and that sort of seems like you're updating it, but the fact that it's called Graceland doesn't really get, makes you not go very far away from the, the old world way of looking at holy places. Right, like it's not like you've really changed it all that much because the word carries with it so much of the history of the idea. Right? It turns like, out though that it, the the people that built the house uh, did so with a loan that they received from their aunt Grace, and so they named the property Graceland after a woman whose name was Grace. Huh. Yeah, which is really interesting. Wow. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, all hey, you know, I think I think a lot of the strength of the Paul Simon album is is that impressionism of the lyrics. I mean, it doesn't it like whereas the Dead Milkman wrote a song in, I mean, I guess the late 80s about, you know, some sort of juvenile punk rock trip to Graceland where they had to watch our they had to watch their language or the guards would beat them up, mm-hmm. um, which was always my favorite line in that song. But 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 Graceland, the album, I mean, that's that has always been on probably my 
maybe even top five desert album or desert uh, desert island albums. And I think that the you know I think that the the distance between those songs and any specific referent of those songs is what lends it a sort of timeless quality. If you were stuck on a desert island, would you want to be listening to an album about road trips, or would it make you upset? Like, I, I would get, probably be so upset hard. about everything in general. It wouldn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much anything. Failed. Yeah, any any song you could listen to would be about some experience that is denied you on your <laughs> desert island, right? Like, so yeah. there's no good. Uh, but I mean, only that song is about a road trip. Not not every song on on. Uh, on Graceland is a road trip. Yeah. Like if I listened to Weird Al's La 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 La, la Lasagna, I would start crying. Um, on because I, cause there's no lasagna anymore. If I had to read any Garfield or anything like that, it would just be a disaster. Yeah, any of the Weird Al food songs, right? Like, yeah. uh, At least you wouldn't know if it was Monday when, you, when you're seeing that without a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Excellent. Well, maybe we should move on to our next topic, which is uh, don't you mean don't you mean Matt that uh, Elvis has perhaps left the building now? <laughs> come on, come on. We just we gave you that segue. If you had a better segue. Uh, why didn't you ju- Why didn't you uh, jump in and and interrupt me? Because you're uh, the host. You're the king of rock and roll, Matt. Yes, I, I hail to the king. No, you know what? I let you guys into the bottom floor of the podcast, but I really live my life up in the up in the top floor. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt, uh it's when the really it's really severe up here. There's no like, you know, jungle room. There's no living room with like stained glass windows of peacocks and all my, you know, gold records and all my <laughs> you know, there's none of that up here. It's like uh like a lot of like shaker furniture, you know, really bare walls, right? It's it's a it's like a grace land, you know, a land where I seek grace through prayer and meditation. Up on the second floor of the podcast. (laughs) When they make a postage stamp of you, are you going to make it the version of you before or after you started doing the paleo diet? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hope it's after because really I dropped 15 or 20 pounds after I started the paleo diet. I, uh, you know, like, I mean, that's an interesting thing about history, right? Like, how do you want to remember? How do you want to remember Elvis? And like, if I'm not mistaken, we ended up with young Elvis on a postage stamp, right? Yeah, he won't. Yeah, I thought they read. I thought they did another line of postage stamps years later with the with the other one that they didn't choose. Elvis had that had a weird sort of he he neither had the like sort of you know Mick Jagger aging into irrelevance nor nor the uh the janice joplin kurt cobain thing he had a kind of a, a, a you know a, as far as i know unprecedented weird middle ground as far as uh as far as the arc of his particular firework mm-hmm. but it yeah. burns so very very brightly yeah, he also did shoot, shoot across the sky I that you saying gold I records also reminded me of a the, there there is a brief part of the tour that, that you go through where uh, where they're showing just the wall of all of Elvis's gold records, and for for just a little while, the gold records also have a gold or platinum cassette tape welded to the bottom of the plaque, <laughs> huh. which I thought was great. I don't know if they thought they were transitioning. Uh, 
<laughs> well, so it's okay. So if Ben Affleck needed to come and get us out of Graceland in some way, <laughs> how would he? Would he make a movie? How would he go about doing this? Isn't it? <laughs> I, yeah. Exa- well, I mean, you know uh, what? Like uh, Hollywood producers are the real heroes of the uh, hostage crisis. Yeah, the uh, colonel is is the real king, right? Like, <laughs> so uh, Ben, Ben, and Mark, we know you. Uh, we know you saw. Um, we know you saw Argo, so we're not going to let you talk about it. Zach, Pete, and I are actually going to do the segment <laughs> on Argo in the because it's the Overthinking podcast after all. No, uh, what did you think, Ben? Ben Affleck now apparently out of you know Hollywood jail. This is what the second second movie that he's directed uh that's that is by all accounts pretty damn good is it is that the case yeah it's uh it's well made it's um it's a very i mean we don't we don't do too much uh in the way of reviews but uh it's a very entertaining movie it has a very older style to it i mean it's not at all like a born movie which is all there's very very little action it's got kind of a <clears throat> I don't know, 70s or 80s spy movie vibe, closer to Three Days of the Condor or something like that. So it's kind of nice to see something that's a little, a little more classically, well, classic story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, but exciting, right? Suspenseful uh, rather than maybe pulse Yes, yeah, it's, it's very, very suspenseful. E- but, but, even knowing that what the story is, it's still very suspenseful. Yeah, perhaps even uh, excessively suspenseful, if that's even possible. Um, I mean, sorry, Ben, you just mentioned that, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, you don't really spoil a movie that's based on ostensibly true events. But there is a certain degree of spoiling, which um, I don't know. if Are you guys OK if we sort of give away some of the key plot elements of this? Uh, yeah. OK, so we'll declare we'll declare blanket spoiler alert for for uh, Argo. Yeah. Well, so Zach, Zach, is, Zach is the guest. Zach is the guest. Right. So is he oh, okay knock with yourself us? out? Not okay. Just... <laughs> All right. We've been okay. given permission. Excellent. So, so, so spoiler alert, uh, number one, his character is named Tony Mendez, right? Uh, so he's, um, he's Latino, right? Yes. And, and Ben Affleck really tarts up these, um, the Sofia Vergara-esque uh, Latin accent for this. <laughs> it, it's pretty hilarious to hear him talk about the CIA, man. He goes to, he goes, he's all about that. I go to Tehran. No, that doesn't happen. No. <laughs> I go to Tehran. I work for the company, you know. Yeah. Ugh, that's terrible. Uh, here comes the hate mail. Okay, so here are my here's my issues uh, with um, uh, my issues with Argo. I, I liked it overall. I thought it was a really great movie. I think Ben Affleck deserves all the praise that he's getting for making this. Um, but uh, towards the end, there are a series of plot points where um, you're like. Seriously, do they really need to ratchet up the tension and like give us this much more of a nail blight, nail biting cliffhanger? Um, which I think you know your 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 senses are heightened for this sort of thing when you're watching something that's ostensibly based on on a true story, right? So let me just give you a quick rundown of these nail biting sequences, and, and Ben, hop in if I'm missing any of these, right? Right, and I I know we were going with this, so yeah, go on. Yep. Okay. Like the night before they're supposed to go on the mission. Um, ben Affleck gets a call, which informs him that it's called off, and then he storm, you know, he broods over it all night, and then he goes rogue and he says he's, he's going ahead with the mission. Right? That did not happen um, in in the true life events. Um, what else? Uh, okay, so they're um, and when they're at the airport, um, they're the of course the Revolutionary Guards, you know, 
um, uh, pull them aside and are trying to figure out if their cover story of you know movie crew is real or not, right? And one of the key things of this is they give them a business card with the fake production company with the phone number there. So like you can call them, you can you know to check out our story. And of course, the people who are on the other end, the Hollywood folks who are supposed to be answering that phone, they are very delayed on their way getting back to that phone. And the phone is ringing, the phone is ringing. And just when the, the, the Iranian guy is about to put, you know, say like, no one's there, this phone number doesn't exist. He's about to put the phone down and then boom, someone picks up like right in the nick of time, right? Um, and then the last one, the, the, sort of the, the, uh, the, the most uh, suspenseful slash egregious uh, accounting of this is at the end when um, there's a sort of uh, a constant threat that the Iranians are going to figure out, um, you know, basically that uh, you know these folks who are just walking around at the airport um, and have been walking around Tehran the previous day um, are in fact American diplomats uh, who are you know not accounted for in the in the group that they took from the embassy, right? Because they've been outside of the embassy this whole time, and the way that it's actually pretty cleverly played out, and that they're sort of trying to reassemble uh, pictures of the diplomats. Uh, that were shredded as the embassy staff were leaving. So they they they, they are literally like piecing together uh, shredded documents, and that gets together. And there's someone finally connects the dots with a picture of um of a of, of a foreigner who that was taken yesterday. And then there's this mad scramble to get to the airplane. You know, there's literally a chase scene where like a, a truck of revolutionary guards is trying to chase down the 747 uh, down the runway. And, that and they miss like it at the Keystone cops. That's that, right. That's right. Like slapstick. I, I, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, in, in, in the time, in the moment when you're watching the, the movie, you're, you're eating it up. It's, it is, it is well done suspense. You know, it, it's, it's a movie. It's what it's supposed to do. Um, but it was just like stepping away from it. And after going back and reading the true story, the true sequence of events, which, you know, did not, at least the version that I read did not have any of these sort of nail biters in it, right? You're a little bit like, huh, you know, did they really have to give it that much of the Hollywood treatment? And I guess the answer is yes. And that's what, you know, is, is going to make for a suspenseful movie. But, um, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, as I'm telling you here, I am a little bit, put off by it so i wanted to get your reactions to this ben if you yeah, the, saw the same thing and the rest of the panel what you think about the overall um, my overall train of thought the other ones were not the other deviations weren't as bad but the car chase definitely took me out of it because it's just it and it, it would be it's exciting it's a good scene but it as i was watching i was like there's no way that happened mm-hmm. in real life there's so enough- it took me out of no because i didn't know the full details of the story so i didn't know which details were wrong which details were right until you get to the car chase scene on the runway and you're like oh well that's that's crap and so that that was kind of disappointing because that definitely took me out of the yeah took and me the, out of the scene a little bit the car chase wasn't enough um uh, like they uh, the, the the tower the people in the tower clear the plane for takeoff and then moments later, of course, the cars come storming, but like, don't let the plane go! Don't let the plane go! And they're like, what? Right. Uh, with um. regards, Mark, with regards to the, you know, the Hollywood people being delayed, you know, um, even in, in, I know you visited me and we sat in traffic for a long time while you were here in Los Angeles. It's, it's just, it's very hard to get anywhere in this city, you know, and so... Uh, Right. Even if the phone's ringing, they were probably just stuck in traffic. Right. That's totally realistic. They were uh, caught up on account of um, they were on a on a movie set. Right. And they there was a a scene in progress and they were there back to the office where the phone was was blocked. Um, And so at some point they just had to say, screw it. (laughs) 
It's a good line, actually. We're going to be in your movie. They, they tell to the person who's not letting them pass and they just walk through. It's like, yes, they are in the movie in so many different ways. <laughs> there, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with the treatment of Hollywood in the movie. There's probably a 30-minute section in the middle where they're trying to set up all this, uh, this fake movie in Hollywood and they're doing all this fake. It's very kind of wag the dog where they're trying to set this movie up to be as real as possible. So they have like fake press events and make up all these promos. And on one hand, the movie is, you know, it's triumph. It's trumpeting, you know, the one time that Hollywood saved the world. But on the other hand, it's kind of a backhanded compliment because it's not particularly complimentary of Hollywood as a whole. Um, the, the producer Alan Arkin and the other producer, uh, John Goodman are played very well. Uh, but they basically spend the movie making particular Alan Arkin spends the movie making fun of Hollywood. Hmm. So Mark, did you what, like, you know, here you want to like sell a lie. It's like you came to the right place. So, so you seem to be expressing that there, that there's a relationship between this movie and the true events that inspired it. That is important and should be preserved. I mean, is that your sense for the purpose of the movie, what the movie is trying to achieve and how the movie can gauge whether it is successful is whether or not it, it communicates these true events or response similarly to paul simon's song that's, about oh, Graceland. that's just what i was about to say <laughs> yeah you just yeah totally yeah. stole my thunder that is to say why should we hold ben affleck to a higher standard than we hold paul simon to i say to you sir ben affleck uh <laughs> director not of two but of three movies imdb informs me i forgot about yes. the town because i did not see the yeah. town and then the answer is because Voyage of the Mimi is better than the Graduate soundtrack, uh, right? Or, or I was going to say Daredevil or whatnot. No, no. Um, <laughs> but no, that's true. I mean, we're just talking about how how it's kind of a for me, it's kind of a non a non plus that uh, Paul Simon is Graceland song doesn't really correspond to what I think of Graceland as. And in this case, I mean, but this song is still good. Is this is, is the movie? Is there an issue where the movie isn't far enough away from the true events for the suspension of disbelief and the additional changing of the account to? Uh, to play or, or what do you, what is, I mean, I, I didn't see it obviously. So I think that is, it's kind of in a rough middle ground. I and mean, again, it's a very entertaining movie, but it's, de- it definitely tries to get a lot of mileage out of the fact that these events are real. In fact, it, there's a credit sequence where it kind of gives the sum up of what happened to all the characters. And then it shows all these pictures with on the left hand side, it's got the real picture and on the right hand side, it's got the picture from the movie and you can see, Oh my God, even the, the, the bit characters they cast and they have the same mustaches and the same clothes. So they're really trying to play up the fact that they've paid attention to all the detail. And so I feel like part of that's kind of unearned when the rest of the movie is a little bit blown out of proportion. If it were just a fictional movie, if this were just a spy thriller, I don't think there'd be these problems with, oh, that's not realistic because it'd just be a, a spy movie. To be but fair, without the, without the attention paid to the detail of the mustaches, you wouldn't be able to tell who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. Right. <laughs> Even though the good guys are the ones with the awesome mustaches. We should, we should totally re-release Die Hard 2 and make a really big deal about how all of the wardrobes are period accurate. And how they really, when they made Die Hard 2, like, it all looks like it happened in 1990. 
it yeah, like that, really preserves that, tank that top that white tank top <laughs> that bruce willis is wearing or is he wearing a white tank top in in uh die hard in die hard one the die hard, i think the white tank top is characteristic of die hard one and die hard with a vengeance more than it is of die hard two because he spends more time in die hard two exposed to the weather i believe yeah. <laughs> um, because he's inside the airplane which doesn't have as much heat and stuff but i don't know um it's, it's i actually haven't seen die hard two in a long time whereas i've rewatched the one and three like on multiple occasions um but yeah, but um, because that that's also that's it's kind of interesting because right because our other our action movies that have no relationship to historical events, uh, better period pieces as watch you know as time capsules, right? Like if our goal is to see an action movie that shows us what people looked like and how they acted at a certain time, I guess that the question is that those people in those situations aren't realistic in the way that they're being portrayed, right? Like like Ben Affleck's people in the seventies are more from the seventies than uh. Bruce Willis in 1988 is from 1988 for reels. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm probably dogging it a little too hard because it, it does a very good job of establishing the movie in time. There's a great little history sequence. Uh, if you've seen the kingdom, it's very similar to that where it's like voiceover with, it's actually kind of cleverly done. They use a combination of real photos and storyboards from ostensibly from the movie. Um, showing kind of what happened with the democratic government and the Shah and then into the hostage crisis. Um, so it definitely does a very good job of establishing what the stakes are in a pretty neutral fashion. Mm-hmm. So, so Zach, I'm noticing that you're not getting involved. See, it's, it's a skill as an, and the overthinking podcast to be able to talk about a movie that you haven't seen and maybe even aren't all that interested in. Um, do, do you have any connection you want to make to like this movie or something you want to talk about? You can connect tenuously to this movie so that they have to discuss it. Or, no, uh, my mustache crack was about as far as it, that was going to go, I think. I, not, not being familiar with the movie or, to be honest, the historical events uh, portrayed however tightly or loosely in the movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I felt like I could just now, – now I'm pretending I'm just a listener. Oh, okay. This is well. That's the experience that you that you get as a guest on the Overthinking It podcast. You get oh, to come be, a, be a listener before anyone else is. Um, you know, like this is. I was reading something today about this movie that that uh, made the claim that it it uh, hit the sweet spot for historical. Um, uh, you know, for historical dramas, uh, in that no one knows enough about this particular story at least before the film no one knew enough about this particular story uh in the mainstream audience um that you know you could maybe take some liberties or that you could actually sustain suspense uh throughout the whole throughout the whole thing you know like you say they made a movie about uh the the you know nasa's the heroes at nasa making a uh uh making a journey into space on the space shuttle challenger Right. Like the fact that, you know, how that story ends would color uh, your your interpretation of the movie, even, you know, before you saw the first second of it and would uh, would affect what kind of movie they could they could make. Whereas with with this story that wasn't as well known. Right. Like you, you have a little more latitude um, in uh, in terms of how you tell the story, though, I guess to hear to hear Mark and Ben talk about it, uh, they didn't use it exceptionally well. Um, or at least they sort of tarted tarted certain things up in a way that that might not have been uh, that might not have been necessary, right? Like there there is a sel- selection um, there's a selection uh, problem, right? Like when you're doing historical 
um, when you're doing historical drama. And I, the, the movie that comes to mind actually in this um, is Pearl Harbor, right? Uh, speaking of Ben Affleck movies. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that that um, is, is Pearl Harbor. And you can't like uh, – you sort of can't just do um, the attack on Pearl Harbor. You have to do the Doolittle Raid uh, after because you want to put a, a, a win in for the uh, for the good guys. Uh, the good guys, if you look at Mark's that, that Argo, <laughs> that Argo is more akin to something like Braveheart, where it's it's far enough away from most people's knowledge of the details that they they can get away with just trying to make it a compelling story. Yeah, sure. Although, it, yeah, I would watch. The hell to, of a, oh, sorry. Go ahead. So it's pretty close to kind of Apollo thirteen too, because I think before the movie, most people probably had a rough idea that there was some sort of incident but pro- probably a lot of people couldn't have told you if anybody died in it you know they might have confused it with apollo one or you know one of the hey, other did you guys so i think that was a pretty did you guys already similar. know about this or did you look it up after you saw the movie to be able to talk about it here i had heard of it uh the i had read some, the original wired article but it had been forever ago and didn't remember the details yeah, I went on like an hour long like Wikipedia binge uh, after uh, after watching the movie to catch up on all the uh, sort of actual events. And do you think choosing to do it after instead of instead of before was uh, a, an attempt to to be able to enjoy the movie on its own merits as opposed to going in going in well informed and not and not be that guy that's can't stop thinking and talking during the movie about all the inaccuracies. Yeah, that was definitely the case on my part. Uh, ben, I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know enough about it to spot the inaccuracies. As I was saying, I, didn't, I wasn't really noticing them until it got to the car chase on the airline tarmac. And that wasn't like, oh, I know that didn't happen. It was just, I know that that's not the sort of thing that happens in real life. So it probably didn't. So just uh, so I, I didn't know enough I about mean, it to nip. This is a really interesting question, like, if you just, if you zoom out and kind of abstract this question, that is to say, like, do, do you preserve, are you trying to, like, is there an ideal state, you know, to, to, um, to experience a work like this in? And, like, to, what responsibility do you have to, like, put yourself in an ideal state, like, knowing or not knowing certain information before you go in? I know that, Pete, you've, like, you've advocated for a kind of, more heterogeneous view of this and like a, a slightly less purist or slightly less absolutist view uh, encapsulated in the phrase Dan Harmon is in the ravioli, right? That is to say it's, <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible to, uh, to kind of separate out like strands of your life and strands of experience. It's just this kind of, it's this kind of mishmash. It's this kind of mess. And if you're like upset about Dan Harmon getting fired from community, as I think we all are, uh, and then you go eat some ravioli and like, it just doesn't taste as good um, because Dan Harmon got fired from community. Well, Dan Harmon is in the, is in the, is in the ravioli. Right. And like you, you, uh, you kind of can't, uh, create an ideal you can't sort of create an ideal state in yourself by the way that's how i feel about spoilers right like uh, th- as well um there's a kind of i don't know religious pu- almost religious uh purity um almost religious purity to it uh, I've, heard it would, at least, it, uh, I've heard recently about some study that showed that people who had been spoiled on a movie actually enjoyed the movie more in the ways that they can. You know, I might have heard it on you guys's podcast now that I think about it, <laughs> in which um, case. But I mean, also in, reading about it on the Internet. I, I'm, I'm curious. Though, I mean, my my approach to, to 
to video games has always been that to, to me, like one of the primary rewards that I give myself for finishing a video game is reading articles on the internet about the minutia and specifics of the video game. Right. Because I don't want, like, I want to just have the experience that the, that the designer and the, and, and the artists and, and the writers are presenting to me without, without uh, overanalyzing it while I am experiencing it. And, right, and, well, the, and, I, yeah. and I'm, you know, and something like Deadwood, watching Deadwood and then realize that, you know, like, all right, well, a lot of this stuff was based on real people. I waited until I was done with the entire series to, like, read the sort of Wikipedia maze leading outward from Deadwood. Um, and, and I don't know. I don't know that 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 one or the other approach to that is is in any way better. But I think it does seem to be a thing that people will sort of gravitate to one way or another. I think an interesting in terms of game design, it's interesting to to consider games that are designed with the assumption that people are going to be looking at the internet while they're playing it, right? Versus where, because there's some games you just can't really even get through or enjoy fully if you don't have that information. Although, I mean, I always thought that it was that text, text adventures in particular, which of course are kind of pre-general use of the internet by most people, uh, impossible to play. Like, just totally impossible to play so many of those text adventures from back in the day. I mean, do people just trial and error it for just days on end? Like, if you guys have ever played the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure, which is a pretty famous one, I can't imagine how anybody could possibly beat that game without a walkthrough. Even with a walkthrough, it's difficult, right? Well, Telling at the time, they play. sold, the, you know, they sold those Invisiclues walkthroughs through books right basically and and i mean so so having having worked on kingdom of loathing for the last 10 years has been interesting in this regard because it started out with a very like sort of my model when i started working on it was like an everquest where the 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 quests in everquest were very much tacked on and you just had to sort of say a random word to a random NPC. There weren't, you know, there, there weren't these blizzard like exclamation marks over the head to say, this guy has something for you to do. And there was literally no way to see this other than going to the webpage where the crazy guy who actually sat there saying every word to every character had made a list of the ones that worked. Um, and then, and then over time sort of realizing, eh, maybe, maybe relying on people going to like an external wiki to be able to to be able to actually enjoy the meat of this experience is the wrong approach, um, and, and I think that th- there there is still some of that. But you know, something like you look at the you look at the arc of World of Warcraft, they have definitely moved away from that. Um, that there is nothing hidden in there anymore, which which is which is sad in some ways, but it's also a lot more accessible in in, in other ways. So you're saying the mists of Pandaria are not in fact opaque mists, but are more like transparent mists that are just kind of a, temp- a increase in humidity more than yeah. Like they're a very fog they're effect. very carefully placed curtains of mist that don't actually obscure anything important <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice good because i would want to be able to see all the pandas or else why didn't I, why did i buy the game in the first place right as if i don't get to see as many pandas as i want but that is really interesting so you've moved towards a method of you know of hiding fewer how hiding fewer things well, it, what what we've actually tried to tried to do is to for the for the people who are really seriously, you know, trying to trying to be optimal, we've continued to hide stuff from them because they enjoy the the search. Right there, there is a, there is a category of people who want to 
read the Wikipedia article about Argo before they go see it so that they can get what they want out of the movie, which is this this critical analysis of like, all right, what's what's good about this? What's bad about this? What's accurate? What's inaccurate? But then there's a lot of people who just want to go see a movie and enjoy it. And and the same with the game. There's people who want to know before they make their first move what the right move is. And so we, we hide things for, for them to find and to make wikis about. But the people who just want to have the experience of, of doing it, we try to make it comprehensible to them. You know, it, it is a thing that you can just go watch. You can just sit and you can click on this thing until something happens and you get a little bit more of the story. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think that, that trying, to, trying to support both methods, I mean, the movie, the movie doesn't have the, like, back and forth, right? Like, they know either people are going to do this or they're not. Or, or, I mean, maybe they don't, you know, maybe they don't think of their audience as who's going to read Wikipedia about these events before the movie and who's going to read Wikipedia after the movie. Maybe they think, oh, well, we don't really care about that half a percent of people who are ever going to look at Wikipedia about this movie. It's not. And then, they, they're, then dealing it gets with, even... they're dealing with a much. I mean, they're dealing with a mass audience when you're talking about a national release of a movie. So the kind of the kind of niche things that you can do on the internet sort of don't obtain uh, at that scale, right? No. Yeah, and you also eventually hit the point where the the producers go and edit the Wikipedia article when the movie or the game is released so that they can control the things that people are learning about the historical events, right? Like they can, um, they can frame it. They can control the framing. Like when I remember like when the, they were going to announce the vice presidential nominee, when it was coming up for the Republicans, there was a clause, just a flurry of all sorts of Wikipedia edits, right? Because they knew that people were going to start looking at the Wikipedia pages. Right. So, and I know that in gaming, there's a lot of all sorts of mechanisms for control of what goes on out there. And there's different people who adjudicate these sort of things. And, you know, whether they're part of the gaming press or whether they're part of kind of marketing teams there's a lot of kind of uh uh parts that are played by people who are have vested interests in the kind of information that is available to people so you could you could even make like a you know you can you make meta games where you put out specific sorts of information for people in the hopes that they'll find it and combine with the game that you're playing and kind of like lift that up to another level that's interesting i'll be really curious to know if somebody who was connected to the actual making of the movie Argo like went in and made various Wikipedia edits to entries of the Iranian hostage crisis and of this particular mission as well. I mean, they probably thought their own research was pretty good, right? So then maybe they thought they were authorities on it. Even if they weren't trying to manipulate people, it's possible they just like considered themselves to be expert. I mean, and in the fullness of time, more people are going to think of the events uh, that, that occurred as what happened in this movie instead of what happened in reality, right? I mean, that, that for all practical purposes, Mel Gibson was William Wallace because yep. all anyone knows about that is from from that movie unless you are you know unless you're some obscure historian stomping your feet and complaining about how inaccurate it was you know it, it, it like th- that's sort of the way history works right is a is a compelling fictionalized version of something just becomes the truth over time. Yeah, like, like like George S. Patton is another great example. Like that's pretty much George C. Scott in terms of the popular conception of the guy. And there are still people around who knew him personally, right? Like who could tell us what he's like. And uh, but you know the movie is is far more persuasive in terms of framing that. Well, I'm, I'm reading an example. Of this would be what King's Speech, right? Yeah, this entire idea of England and the king and uh, Winston Churchill prior to the war is coming from that movie. When there's a really really major important inaccuracies in there 
um, particularly around Churchill and his attitude towards um, Nazi Germany uh, in the years leading up to um, to England's entry into the war. Yeah, I experienced. I saw some similar inaccuracies in uh, the the season of Doctor Who that I just watched, where Winston Churchill's attitudes towards the Germans is really, really incorrectly uh, reflected to people, and the way that he reconstructed those Daleks just didn't make any sense. I was just a very dubious because uh, you know. It was never a shortage of, of machinery. They had shortages of, of people, right? Anyway, Ben, you were going to say something. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading an article here that, that kind of touches on this, that uh, I guess in the original version of the movie, there's a, there's a postscript at the end that um, talked about kind of the Canadians' role, because that, that's the... For people that haven't seen the movie or aren't familiar with the events, is the, the six Americans were hiding in the Canadian embassy... And for the 20 years after the events of the movie, the Canadians got all of the credit. The CIA wasn't supposed to be involved. And so there's, there's kind of a narrative battle between who gets more credit. And I guess the Canadians were upset with the original cut of the movie. And so they changed a little bit of the postscript to emphasize how this Argo mission is such a model of international cooperation and, and all that. As opposed to an old version of the postscript that kind of made it look like the Canadians didn't deserve as much credit as they got or something like that. So that's just apostrophe America. Right. <laughs> F yeah. F yeah. I love the, uh, the idea of Canadians like sitting in a screening of the first cut of the movie and, you know, uh, it is a very good movie, but uh, we have a few notes uh, uh, about international cooperation you know the the uh like the idea that you know i don't know that canada gives notes on uh on <laughs> uh, let me tell you canada's changing guys like canada has a lot of natural resources and their position in the world stage is changing very rapidly so um you'll see where we are 10 years from now <laughs> but it might surprise you yeah, no, yeah. they're cute their cute little dollars are worth uh, are worth just as many as ours now we we had a we had a joke item in Kingdom of Loving that you could get for 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 giving us ten Canadian dollars instead of ten American dollars, and the power of the item we would update as the exchange rate changed, uh, and and it it became equal several years ago. Now it's not it's not even really a joke anymore. It's because it doesn't really change. This whole situation I would simply call loony. <laughs> <laughs> Good waka 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 flock of flame. The uh, I don't think we know, can the, do any better than that, guys. The podcast. That yeah, one. I guess I guess so. I guess we should we should move on to the uh, to the next se- segment. But I, I and here I was planning to talk about T. S. Eliot's "The Wasteland" as a seminal text in this in this very question uh, that we were considering. Because I'm um, going to wasteland, I'm going to wasteland. <laughs> Me, a dog, and a bunch of bullshit are going to wasteland. <laughs> you can bleep that, right? I don't want to get a chili pepper. <laughs> no, I think you can say bullshit, but not but not the s word. I I think actually, okay. I think the one Let's is okay to keep to uh, keep it um, to keep it PG thirteen. So uh, all right, well you know it's been a long long time, and kind of uh, in honor of in honor of uh, Zach's podcast Advice Hot Dog, where uh, you know you help people by answering their questions about things. 
um, we we thought that that maybe it would be time to do uh, to do listener feedback, and uh, you know it would be great to have to have you around, Zach, to do some listener feedback with. So um, I'm always pimping the I'm always pimping the number, even though you know Pete, my nemesis, is uh, you know always trying to get people not to call. Uh, I do want people to call the number because we will play your voicemails on the show eventually. It's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Uh, here's a voicemail that we got from Robin. Hey, overthinkers. This is Robin in San Francisco. Let's see what the GPS says we are today. The GPS says it's off. No, it says we're at 37 degrees, 47 minutes, 57.0366 north by 122 degrees, 23 minutes, 44.3009 west. That's nice. I just wanted to leave you all a message because I was amazed at the most recent uh, show. That was pretty nice having Zach on put together two of my podcast habits, which is Kingdom of Loathing and then The Overthinking. And then you all decided to talk about the J-Raps that brought in the last set of podcasts I listened to, which would be the skeptical stuff. So that was cool. Anyway, feel bad about the listener feedback shows being retired after you did my uh, particular overthinking feedback show. So you guys should bring those back. They're fun. Keep it up. Bye. Done and done. <laughs> we We're satisfied everything he wanted. Sufficiently yeah. skeptical uh, to, to meet that criteria? I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if it's skeptical enough. <laughs> Uh, All right, now, now we're good. <laughs> moving, moving right along. Keeping things, <laughs> keeping things moving here. Here we go. Greetings, overthinkers. This is Wade from 36 degrees, 4.472 minutes north, 79 degrees, 47.228 minutes west, or at least that's what my GPS device tells me. And I'd like to take this opportunity to say, in light of recent world events, uh, I'd like to say this is civilly and patriotically and as politely uh, as I possibly can. Uh, 872! 872! 872! 872! Thank you. I forget when we got that. I downloaded it a while ago, and I, I'm not quite sure where it, when when it came in. Wait, do you want to call back and leave another message <laughs> and tell us tell us about the context? This is this is exactly the problem that we were talking about. That is to say, there is a context um, that is knowable, right? For your. Uh, for your message, but we don't have it. If, like, uh, like T.S. Eliot, you included a set of footnotes um, of your own <laughs> composition in the original text of your voicemail, uh, it would be a lot easier to interpret uh, what you mean by I assume that he's just singing. The, I, I actually had to pull out a digital representation of a, a touchtone phone keypad to, to, to see what he might be talking about. And I'm pretty sure he's singing the praises of the uh, embattled uh, T.S.A., TSA, TSA. <laughs> Did you guys have a show where you where you made fun of the TSA? I I, I can't think what would have gotten him so riled up. Praising the TSA to the extent that we we coined the the chant eight seven two eight seven two. Express enthusiasm for uh, how they keep our transportation safe and administer it. 
And also, you know, they, they didn't even have to buy them dinner, so it was pretty awesome. I guess it could also be USB, USB, USB. <laughs> it is a pretty I'm good a standard for, for serial communication between it's, devices. Yeah, and, and USB 3.0 might have just been standardized at the point when he left that. When he left, I that got, if now. someone's got to be sticking something into me, it better be a USB than a TSA. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I don't think he's praising uh, the TSA because uh, he comes to bury the TSA, not to praise them. Hey, Overthinkers, this is Robin. Um, let's see. Hey, it's Robin again. What the Ooh. GPS says. GPS says 37 degrees, 31 minutes, 8.7148 what, seconds north. 122 degrees, 15 minutes, 18.6219 seconds west. That would be the new office since I'm no longer at Twitter, actually. A um, couple things. One thing occurred to me. Um, the listener feedback thing were done as a like 10 minute segment at the beginning of every episode, it would be more conversational, uh, back and forth more rapidly than once a year, uh, which might be nice. Some people might like that. And the other thing is, um, I probably will never see Thor, but I just listened to the one about Thor and the way y'all described it was basically like Hancock, but not done as well. So thought that would be amusing. Anyway, keep it up. Keep overthinking. Oh, and nerds. Oh, that's actually a very old. That's actually a very old uh, uh, bit from the show, right? Where we ask people to send in recordings of themselves calling us nerds. Uh, and just a few months ago, I actually got a whole bunch uh, from a uh, an American who's teaching an American, I think, who's teaching. Um, uh, in South Korea, teaching English, I, I imagine. I may be making some of this up. But uh, he sent me a whole series of MP3s of his South Korean students calling us nerds. And we were going to edit all these together into some kind of like uh, meta cry of nerds uh, to the overthinking or the overthinkers <laughs> on the Overthinking It podcast, um, which, like many things, we never did, including the many recordings we got of people saying it probably doesn't deserve that we were going to uh, edit edit um, edit into a thing. So uh, don't take don't take offense. I don't think I, I think Robin is calling us nerves nerds lovingly, but it's it's very clear that if Robin speaks for any portion of our audience. People miss the listener feedback shows. Hey, so, it's, while we're explaining uh, old references from previous podcasts that are uh, re- representing themselves in these voicemails, can we also talk about the latitude longitude thing because that um, came from a, a an episode years years ago. And we can say that now because we've been around for so long. Years years ago, in which um, one of us, I think it was me actually, like just jokingly referred to, uh, jokingly asked for people to submit their latitude longitudes when uh, submitting listener feedback, so that I don't know terminators could go back in time to find them or something like that. Right. <laughs> so, great deal of fun as well, but um, it, it doesn't make for great radio. But you know, someone has to read a string of uh, a numbers out for a, a long period of time. So can we drop that requirement, guys? Are, are we all in favor of that? Nay. Oh, <laughs> I say me nay. I actually, maybe I, we I can really... just encourage. We can just encourage them to uh, reduce their precision a bit. Maybe just just the degrees will be fine. You know, they can. We can narrow it down to a. To oh, a sure. So the military miles. guy is telling us that we should introduce some error <laughs> into the GPS signal. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> 
I'm just saying I need to be able to hit him with a missile. That's all I'm saying. And I, I need those ICBM coordinates because I have an ICBM, and some lucky winner is going to be the recipient of it. Uh, I know no, like say, that you like guys were say... doing the Latin long thing uh, during the at the 25th anniversary of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because uh, I was. <laughs> I was in New York at the time and that I was listening to the first episode of the podcast that I ever listened to and noticed that the Empire State Building was green. And so I, I looked it up to see why. And it was because of that anniversary. <laughs> I mean, if they want to pick some other way of identifying where they are, like if you want to use you don't have to use specific GPS coordinates, but there's got to be some way of identifying it. But we also I think it was we didn't want people to give. We were anxious about people giving their real locations, right? Because we were anxious about like giving too much away about people, and then we sort of took it the other way and gave way too much tip about people out. Um, but yeah, maybe if, if there's like yeah, but don't give it, a- don't give like the the latitude and longitude of your house, right? Give the give the latitude and longitude of the the haunted Starbucks on the corner or something, right? Exactly. <laughs> And if you don't know which Starbucks is haunted, take a haunted Starbucks tour. <laughs> and a yeah, we'll, be sell- we'll be selling those for two bucks on, on for one ninety nine on overthinkingit.com slash uh, store. We have one more voicemail we're gonna play. Let's get um, let's get right to it. Hey overthinkers. This is Robin. <laughs> Trying to figure out where my GPS is. It looks like I'm thirty seven, thirty three, forty two point one seven seven five north by one twenty two eighteen fifty six point four three seven four west. What do you know about that? There's something for a listener feedback. You guys should know a Nietzschean anthem of shallowness is one of the best phrases you guys have ever come up with. So yeah, that made my morning. Have a good one. Uh, what the what what? what? Well, yeah. So, right. This is this is the problem with context, and right because we don't remember when we said that. Perhaps we could get a, a um, perhaps we could get another voicemail, right? About uh, another voicemail about uh, <laughs> what your voicemail meant. It could yeah, be we like just don't remember what that was in reference to. Yeah, on 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 faith on belief that we actually said that. So. Uh, wow, good on us for coming. It sounds like yeah, it sounds like something we said, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't it just? Um, excellent. Uh, so those those are our four voicemails. We have a we have a few texts, but we put out the call. We put out the call for tweets um, uh, right at the beginning of recording this uh, this podcast. Um, so, uh, do we have any tweets uh, that uh, Mark that you want to uh, read into the record that we can answer very quickly? Okay, we got a couple from Brian Lewis, uh, who asked, um, what does Hegel mean by absolute spirit? Uh, but more seriously, how does Fenzel feel about Zynga? Ooh. <laughs> uh, well, what I'll say about Zynga is that I'm not a good enough skier to get down their stock chart. Uh, I would fall and I would skid most of the way down. So uh, take that in mind when choosing to invest your money. Actually, I can't really. Uh, it's fine. I'll say that because I'm not really being serious. Don't take my advice. But uh, yeah, Zynga is an idea that uh, was really popular and exciting, but was uh, terrible. <laughs> and their acquisition of OMG Pop was a disaster. And uh, it should uh, just go to serve that the primary role of any business is to provide value, and extracting money is the secondary goal. <laughs> so. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that Kingdom of Loathing delivers more value than it focuses on sort of maximizing ways of getting people to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of always been the thing. I mean, it's I don't necessarily begrudge Zynga their approach. It's it's pretty rational. But uh, 
my my primary feeling about Zynga is I am I am glad that it seems like their reign has ended before they before they have done any really serious damage in terms of like legal precedent. Uh, because I started, I, I really didn't want because all of the situations where Zynga would just basically copy somebody's game and put a new put a new wallpaper on it and and make something that their their marketing money made into just a a sort of a juggernaut relative to the thing that they had ripped off. I, I really didn't want precedent to start getting set where game design methodologies could start being copyrighted or patented, and I was worried. I was worried that they were eventually gonna gonna step on the tail of a big enough tiger like like EA, for instance, that uh, that we would end up heading down that road. And uh, I guess it still might happen because those those wheels turn fairly slowly, and those the lawsuits between Zynga and EA are still uh, are still out there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's it's a rough thing because like in a way you want people to be able to do whatever, but they're also pretty clearly the bad guys. They're in your book, right, Mark? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Chapter 12. Um, <laughs> that uh, Words with Friends, I play the crap out of that all the time. So they did something right. Well, they, they bought a good game, right? I mean, that, that's the... Yeah, yeah Scra- Scrabble is pretty great, and Scrabulous was pretty great, too. <laughs> you know, like... Uh... <laughs> Speaking of doing things right, uh, the official Scrabble app, for the iPhone at least, is uh, nowhere close to the level of enjoyability. That um that okay that might be an exaggeration but uh, the Wars with Friends uh, iPhone app is much uh is is much more better executed well, that's a terrible it's better executed than the Scrabble app so. yeah when Zynga took yeah. it over though they they started selling in app as in app purchases uh cheating programs yeah I, which, I I don't use that the people that I use uh, that I play against don't use that either but like. That aside. Yeah, I mean, it's fine if you if you are actually playing words with your friends who you trust not to do that kind of crap. Uh, it, it kind of made it so you can't just start a random game with a stranger anymore because odds are they're just, you know, using... The, they're not only... like it, It's like Zynga doesn't care if the game is good, right? They just care that the people who already gave the... the I don't actually know the name of the company that made words with friends to begin with. New Toy or something? Uh, you know. They, they they realized that the people who were playing Words with Friends from before weren't giving them any money. So, well, what can we sell them? Ah, the ability to to cheat and just sort of stomp on stomp on the quality of the product that we're delivering. If, if Facebook can figure out how to sell that to people in their relationship statuses, I think they'll finally have a revenue model that will justify their multiple. Uh, if they can somehow make make it, you know, if you can buy cheating on Facebook. And I think then uh, that's really will justify realize some of that value in that stock. I mean, relationship status cheating actually would be a great addition to. Yeah. <laughs> Should we move on to the questions here? Yeah, let's let's knock them out. Let's do it. Uh, uh, this comes from Sam KD on Twitter. Um, the question is for Zach. Uh, Zach, how do you feel uh, that the web game experience informs your experience of console or PC games? How, how the web game experience? Yeah. How does how do you feel the web game experience informs your experience of console or PC games? I wonder. I mean, I wonder if Sam KD means as like a player or as a, a designer of web games. Yeah, I mean, having been a designer of nothing nothing but web games, it's 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 kind of hard to say. I mean, it, in the same way as there are still people 
making you know realistic paintings even though photography is a thing and and there are there are still things being done in various styles i think that the web provides an interesting place for a sort of a low fidelity experience to be explored that the the sort of traditional commercial spaces don't allow for and it is it's interesting to me for for a long time like the the nintendo handhelds were a great place to play like super nintendo style games because that was a console for which they were still making that kind of game and now it's getting to the point where that kind of thing is more and more something that you just find as like a, a you know a really low budget pc title or or a web game um you know, there there's room for everything, right? There 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 is room for for the independent movie next to next to the big budget blockbuster, and I think there being a lot of different media for video games with with really variable costs to cost of entry to, to barriers to entry and and cost to to developing on them is is great. I think that there's never been a better environment for. A, a breadth of experience than there is now. Um, and as far as how they relate to each other, I mean, there, there are things that are true across all of the, you know, there are things that are good about games in general, in, in just the broad case. And there are probably things that are bad about games in the broad case. Um, although I feel less, com- I, I feel less uh, confident in that statement. But that also, uh, the, by the way, uh, you know, good, good games versus bad games. Um, okay, moving on to the next one. This comes from a uh, Twitter user, The Gun Run, whose real name is Justin Ignacio. Um, question is uh, not directed to anyone in particular, so for the group, um, if you had the power to make any video game become the next big spectator sport, a la NFL or uh, football, I guess that means soccer, what, the, what the, we call soccer, the rest of the world calls football, uh, which would you choose? Huh, what video? What what video game would you turn into? Can, can I can I just can I just point out? Uh, Justin Ignacio is kind of a celebrity. Uh, he's a StarCraft celebrity. Gunrun is I, like I, I saw things like is that actually Gunrun? Like yeah, that's actually Gunrun. So I mean, he probably wants us to say uh, Gunrun playing StarCraft. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Justin, <laughs> oh, Justin's great. I, I met him earlier this year in San Francisco. He's uh he's like a he's a big player over at. Uh, Twitch TV, which is the the sort of like uh, video game broadcasting offshoot of, of Justin TV. That's oh, I love I love Twitch. I talk about it on podcast yeah, all the time, everywhere, yeah. all over the place. Now, yeah, he's he's a good kid. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think he wants you to talk about Starcraft. Yeah, um, it should totally be the uh, it should be Legacy of the Void, the next StarCraft uh, expansion. Because I'm I'm not feeling too enthusiastic about Heart of the Swarm. I don't know about if anybody else here has been thinking about it, but it doesn't seem to be enough of a departure from Wings of Liberty to really maintain people's attention. I mean, the real issue StarCraft is facing now is that you know the whole mo- the the momentum is behind League of Legends now, especially in Asia, right? In terms of as a spectator video game, they've they've got the ball in their court. Um, even though, of course. If one could patent uh, game design methodologies, they would have a very dubious uh, claim on their game, right? Because it's it's a Dota clone for the most part, as far as I understand it, although I have never played it myself. Um, so yeah, so I guess that what I would like to see, I mean, my, my initial response when I saw the question was NBA Jam. Like and I and not, and not that I want people to play NBA Jam as a spectator sport, but that I want people in real life to do the things that happen in NBA Jam, and I would watch that, <laughs> including Bill Clinton dunking on like the on like uh, 
McGrath, McGriff the crime dog, McGriff the crime dog or whatever. Uh, whatever yeah, I would be a lot happen. more likely to watch a basketball game if the players were periodically set on fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, but you know, I mean, I guess RTSs are tough. I, 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 I'm not, I, I was into StarCraft for a while, like not as nearly as long as somebody who played Brood War, but like I got really on board with Wings of Liberty out the gates and it eventually just exhausted me. And I, and I really feel like it doesn't have, and we were talking about this kind of before, you know, it doesn't have that kind of entry level appeal to people who don't look up the strategies. Like, if you don't have a good build order in in StarCraft II, like the default play options eventually lead you to being destroyed. I mean, I guess you do eventually level off and lose about half the time, but you're never going to understand why. You know, it's it's uh, you're required to be really invested in the in the in the um, community to really play, and I, and I think that that kind of causes a problem. Um, I think it could be better. If uh, there was a way to play StarCraft that was friendlier to people who aren't interested in the competitive scene that were successful. And the biggest problem is, of course, the user interface that they built into the uh, custom game screen in Wings of Liberty is just terrible. And the sorting algorithm is terrible. And any way that you can find to play a custom game is terrible. And that's really was their long-term revenue model or, or strategy, right, was to sell custom games. Uh, and and they uh, and they just failed because they didn't make a custom game platform that actually made that work and got people interested and invested. Uh, and I think part I mean, of it they're was- they're in the unenviable position of having this thing that that people care about so much that it is mm. it is very difficult for them to make any decisions or any changes one way or another, you know, without without risking alienating their audience. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not like they could just take a whole bunch of crazy risks just to see what happens. I'm curious. I mean, you're talking about how League of Legends and 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 Dota, uh, it, it Dota Two, are starting to do this. You know, Blizzard has their own version of that in development, but who knows how long that's going to take? I mean, they they their sort of perfectionist strategy might bring them to market so late on that that they don't get to do the thing that they normally do, which is to watch other people work on this genre and then release something that is just a, a, a sort of a perfect shining example of what you can do. Right. Yeah. With that genre. It, it's it's going to be interesting to see what the next few years is like for them. Cause it's, you know, the, the, the tide of public opinion, the, it's hard to gauge based on what people say on the internet, what people think, mm-hmm. um, you know, but, uh, but you know, it, 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 we might, we might be seeing the, the crest of of what's happening with that that whole outfit's arc. I mean, just to, to sort of go back to what I was talking about with Zynga, like Blizzard as a video game company has been very uh, fortunate and also very successful because their revenue model, uh, or the, the, rather their the, their revenue in general, like their earnings growth and their kind of pattern for earnings has been very atypical of gaming companies. They've been able to produce really consistent income, really consistent earnings over the long term, whereas other gaming companies have to take so much so many risks that they will have good years and they will have bad years right like when uh the when the knights of the old republic uh uh, RPG looked like it you know, died on the vine because it was so terrible. Or the MMORPG for Star Wars, you know, EA stock took a huge hit, right? Because these games need these successes. And and Blizzard has had World of Warcraft to kind of shore up their their balance sheet for a long time, their income statement for a long time. And that the power of that is starting to ebb. And you're starting to see that they might not necessarily have things in the pipeline to really replace it. And uh, and I mean the the end of the the end game of that is not Blizzard fails. It's Blizzard becomes a regular gaming company instead of a gaming company where everything they touch turns to gold, which is a disaster for them in terms of their own standards. But, you know, for the rest of us, I don't know where it would go in Mark's book in terms of good and bad. 
right? Like, um, I mean, maybe maybe it puts those specific people in a position where they have to start taking some risks, you know, Mm. which wouldn't wouldn't be the end of the world for the gaming consumer. It, it, because, you know, the company that doesn't take any risks is Zynga. They just keep cranking out, you know, and, and they're in a similar situation. They've got their they've got their like poker stuff bringing in a lot of the money, you know, and 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 Farmville, Farmville was was a big cash cow nah, for for a little while. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, part of part of what you get from from sort of hungrier companies is I mean, it's a it's a more stressful and 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 like less fun way to operate and and it's it's in some ways it's it's a little constricting because it's like we have to we have to make the video game that we can make by next month rather than we have to make the best video game that we can make but the thing that you do if you sit there with infinite resources trying to make the best video game that you can make is you never ever finish a video game yeah you do ever that nonsense yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also interesting. Oh, say so go ahead, Mark. I wanted to just uh, send us the last question, unless you had one other point you wanted to wrap and put in. I mean, the last the last point I make on that is is I really think that history will be a judge of whether Blizzard's hostile stance toward the Korean Esports Association will turn out to be seen as a large strategic blunder, um, because the, the this is a group that's sort of a cartel for professional gaming, uh, and was for Brood War for a long time, and so when Rings of Liberty came out, Blizzard made a bunch of strategic decisions to try to prevent um, affiliate, like not even affiliates, but independent companies from running StarCraft tournaments, including removing you know the ability to have local area networks, uh, and also kind of really aggressive negotiations on on licensing these things. And as a result, the people that they've had on the ground in Asia in particular have not had much of a profit motive to really uh to really pimp this game over other games. And and I wonder whether as much as Wizard wants like their bosses require them to get that share of that revenue that they lost before, they don't realize that actually you're a gaming company, you're not a promotion company. You're not going to make that revenue. They're going to make that revenue. And you need to consider whether it's worth it to stick to your knitting in terms of a larger overall business. So but anyway, it could be either way. It could be these guys are thugs and it all was ruined or it could just be it was all luck. Let's we can go to the last question. Um we can we can uh we can GG on this one. At some point, I need to f- figure out who to put into the book in the good or bad. Um, yeah. Where to put where to put Blizzard? That is okay. Just, uh, just put a bunch of destructible rocks around it, and it'll be fine. That'll fix everything. Okay. <laughs> question from Fafara on Twitter: Hey, Jack, when will you confess your undying love for Scully? Uh, on tomorrow night's episode of the Kingdom of Loathing podcast, I promise. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but you heard it here first. We're breaking. We need a footnote. We need T.S. Eliot's footnotes. <laughs> we need the Twitch slide. That's what we need. Um, all right. Well, I think this may be the longest episode of the Overthinking It podcast ever, actually. I, it, uh, no joke. Um, but I'm glad we did it because it was an interesting conversation, and I'm glad to have listener feedback, and, and we're going to find a way to make it a more regular part of the show because I think it, it makes everything better. Um, but great. Uh, so if you, uh, would like to participate in that listener feedback, you can call 203-285-6401. That's whatever non-offensive acronym you can come up with for, uh, 203 all, all the ones that, that we have are dirty. Um, 
or uh, email podcast at overthinkingit.com. Call or text that number or email podcast at overthinkingit.com, and you can join the conversations that happen uh, with astonishing regularity and astonishing civility for the internet uh, on the show notes for these episodes on Overthinking It. It remains only for me to thank Zach for being on the show. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. Um, it is a pleasure, and I hope we'll have you back before too long. Uh, and to thank the panelists and remind you that until we come back next week with this show, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Footnote. So, Mark, I'm going to name a historical figure. You tell me whether they're good or bad. Okay. Gold of my ear. <laughs> Who? Uh? Christopher Columbus. <laughs> Maria Teresa. Mark Anthony, the singer. <laughs> Enrique Iglesias Caesar. 